Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 201. I'm your host, Chris Webster, with my co-host, Paul Zimmerman. Today we talk to the editors of the February 2023 issue of Advances in Archaeological Practice about the data collection and management problem in archaeology. Let's get to it. All right. Welcome to the show, everybody. Paul is still doing field work on the other side of the planet, and it's nighttime for him, so he won't be joining us for this episode. But that's no problem, because I've got an interview with Michael... Hyland and Shelby Manet. Michael and Shelby, welcome to the show. Thank you, Chris. It's great to be here. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks. All right. So you guys are on because you are promoting the February 2023 issue of Advances in Archaeological Practice on Refining Archaeological Data Collection and Management. And you guys were the guest editors of that episode. So I don't know which one you wants to go first, but how did this come together? What what brought you into this? So, I mean, we've had a, an interest in in uh, trying to, to move the needle in terms of how archaeology and also particularly CRM does business and particularly in respect to data. And we feel that there's been a lot of discussion of data practices and approaches, particularly with digital data in most recent years, but they usually consider one portion of the data lifecycle or workflow. And what we mm-hmm. want to try to address is that perhaps to to address what we call in, in our introduction to the issue, the archaeology's data problem, is that we really need to look at the entire data cycle and lifecycle and workflow and consider all the elements because they're all linked together and they impact each other, particularly starting with the, the planning of and data collection and, and data collection itself. This particular issue began with a symposium that Shelby and I organized, the SAA meetings, uh, which were to be in San Francisco in 2021. And we had invited a, a lot of people that we thought were you know involved in in various aspects of of this problem and had uh, some things to say and we got a great group of uh, presenters together presented some some really inspiring and and we thought visionary papers mm-hmm. so we reached out to the editors that advances in archaeological practice to see if we might uh, organize a uh, special issue surrounding the uh, subject. Yeah, Michael and I have been interested in in data, not just archaeological data, probably for, at least for me, for most of my life. <laughs> and the funny thing, I didn't want to be an archaeologist. <laughs> I loved data and linear thinking and was an annoying child that had to make sure everything was backed up <laughs> by facts and data and statistics. Nice. Writing to local newspapers, telling them that you can't say that, you have no data to back. That kind of kid. <laughs> That's so, awesome. So I had a lot of trouble with human interaction and people. And so mm-hmm. I, was, I said, well, I need to figure out the data problem there. I don't have the data to understand people. And then I found out that, well, the only way you can get access to deep data about humans is to become an archaeologist. So I did that. Yeah. 
So we've been wrangling with these issues, found Michael, and this is just a series in, in several different types of uh, publications and, and things that we've been doing to try to make what it seems to be looking at static data in archaeology, like this time period, and we have neat little uh, tables that say this is this time period, and that's that time period, and this is this Pavlovian this period, this is accepted mm-hmm. period, put in a nice table divided by dates that may or may not be rough dates. So it's thinking about it as living data through time. They can tell us stuff now, you know, in the past and now and, and in the future. But in order to do that, we have to look at as archaeologists the whole data life cycle and how that's connected to this dynamic and living ecosystem, you know, this big blue globe that we're in instead of just in very pinpointed time and space. So that's thinking about that. We wanted to get people together and wanted to make the issue also something that was accessible mm-hmm. to publish it with open free copyright so that people could share it and start discussing the topics that are in there so we can come together and then integrate with others outside of our field you know in a more robust way to start thinking about data as being linked in this cycle okay that's a an excellent primer into you know how the issue came about and and what you guys are doing let's talk about you guys again real quick before we get into some other stuff that's in the issue, Shelby, I'll start with you. We, do we try to keep employers and things like that out of these conversations, just keep a little more generic? But what does your day-to-day look like? What's your day job around this? Well, I am the deputy director and now interim director of um, the Environmental Management Office for the Arizona Army National Guard. Okay. Uh, I started here as the principal investigator, and my life was actually in CRM, the majority of it, I don't know, 15 years or whatever it was. Okay. Um, as one of the leads for TRC. And so I've tried doing this sort of thing, getting data, mm-hmm. answering questions about the human past and integrating it into biological data, geological ecology, et cetera, and different environmental data as a CRM, you know, archaeologist, and then in academia. And it's been tough going. So I decided, <laughs> okay, well, if I'm an agency archaeologist and I have land, you know, we have 32 facilities, so I I have a good data sample. So I literally picked my job based on the data sample. Okay. So I would have access to different cultural areas and uh, ecological zones so that I could test out certain things and see, how, see if we, we can possibly do that. Also to influence policy. So. Sure. Because the DOD owns a lot of land. <laughs> and so integrating it with other people in the Army and the DOD, maybe we can have it come all together and show the federal government and others in a way that we can ask broader questions about the human past and its integration into this living and dynamic ecosystem that I was talking about. Awesome. That sounds pretty exciting, actually. I love it. And, and what about you, Michael? What's your day job look like? Well, I am... Um the director of what's called the Center for the Study of Cultural Landscapes, which is embedded within a uh, CRM firm. Mm-hmm. And a lot of my career in, in CRM in the past uh, maybe 15 years has been in directing the research for large and complex projects, some of them large excavations, other ones uh, sort of land extensive surveys or excavations in many different areas as part of, say, a transportation project. 
Mm-hmm. And through that, I had a lot of opportunities to synthesize, uh, try to compile, synthesize large data sets, I have a focus in uh, geospatial and quantitative analysis. For the last few years, I began working with Shelby and her office, supporting them in modeling, in developing data models and schemes and collection and management schemes for their cultural resource and natural resource data, and then trying to come up with both analytical, technological, and also human workflows for sort of pushing the envelope in, in how we do CRM and integrate it with uh, natural resource management activities that, that Shelby oversees. Nice. All right. Well, again, also sounds exciting. I love it. You know, we're going to talk about some of the stuff in the uh, in the issue of uh, advances in archaeological practice, but I just kind of want to talk to you guys about this whole topic, just just bringing it up because it sounds like you're really into this. And the fact that you guys are both in CRM or or were in CRM for a long time, you know as well as I do that you know the initial data problem in this whole business comes right from the boots on the ground people that are collecting the data, right? Yeah. I mean, I was in I was in CRM as a field technician and as a crew chief and a project manager for a long time. I've worked in 18, 19 different states and different regions around the country. Interestingly enough, I never really worked in the Southwest except for like New Mexico, but I, don't, I almost don't even count it. It was just like a month, maybe two. And that was pretty much it. But I worked in the Southeast, the Northeast, California, Nevada, Washington, you know, a lot of places in the Midwest and in between. And everybody collects the same things. I've always said this on this podcast. We all collect information about artifacts, features, and landscapes. We take pictures and we do descriptions, but literally every state does it differently, right? Everybody has different forms. Everybody has different terms and different, you know, ways of doing this. I figure if we're going to talk about the data collection problem in this country, I mean, we have to start right there, don't we? And what's the solution? (laughs) Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head there. I mean, that's absolutely a great characterization of the of the uh, problem mm-hmm. well that's definitely what if you know if you look at what we have so i divided up my strategy and that i've tried to do like i said through some various you know trying any profession i possibly can to do it mm-hmm. divided up my strategy into the data life cycle and looking at both human workflows meaning how we do things and the data workflows and trying to match those up to Get rid of a site concept and more look at, you know, initial observations. So if we think of, you know, kind of the scientific method and making sure that we can be as accurate as possible in initial observations, especially when excavation is involved because we can't go back, right? Mm -hmm. So looking at the data collection, as you said, is paramount, is critical. This is the cornerstone of everything else that comes after it. And because... Artifacts move on the ground. It's a dynamic system of aggregation, dispersion, whether it's through time or at the time of deposit, that we have to do repeated observations in order to understand the full observation, not just a site that is dog-leashed. So looking at the collection problem and why we collect things differently is nonsensical. We need to have, even if we disagree, we need to have an understanding and a basic concept of higher level ontologies, higher level categories that at least will allow us to open up a conversation and collect mm. things systematically so that I don't have to try to data integrate something that's completely collected differently, then obfuscated by the fact that people have normalized it, moved it around, and the only original data is on someone's computer 
So all I have are these documents, maybe, and these reports um, as outcomes. So I have no idea how they collected it sometimes. Collection is critical. I agree with you 100%. Michael? <laughs> well, well, I think you said it very well. That is the uh, crux of the problem. And I think if we could get to a state where where we're actually collecting things that funnel into some sort of common core ontology or, or meta-ontology and basically agree that, that as Chris says, the um, we're basically making observations about the same types of things. Mm-hmm. We're just schematizing in, in them or in different ways and different formats, sometimes a bewildering variety of, of forms and, and specific methods are used, but <laughs> it's an obstacle to our ability to understand the past and to leverage the data, the massive amounts of data that are being collected in CRM to understand yeah. our present and, you know, chart the future uh, or make sense of those data and, you know, make them also available to other disciplines that, yeah could benefit from uh, yeah. an archaeological perspective. And I honestly don't think that the, that the issue here is that, um, you know, that, that it's an impossible insurmountable task. There's lots of other sciences and lots of other disciplines that do this. Even human, human data disciplines, like, say, I don't know, looking at the Census Bureau, right? Mm-hmm. Just pick some categories. Sometimes they're not great. Through time, it might change. But we document those changes as they change through time, so then we can change and, and look at the other data. Or at least let's decide on the scale at which our observations are going to happen. Let's just start there. And what, what scale can we currently gather data on the surface, subsurface, and what are some techniques that we could better understand the subsurface without digging? You know, then we can attack these other types of problems. Starting with the question is fine, but instead I think we should collect, regardless of the question, the range of the field so that if someone else were to have a question in the future or then that they can ask their questions and maybe even have the data come up with, say, in, in um, machine learning, et cetera, mm-hmm. some actual things that we wouldn't have thought of, some, some similarities, you know, um, that we might, might not have thought of. And we can't do that because data is usually collected for a particular yeah. purpose in mind and the rest of it, you know, is not there. So, I really believe that we have a an epidemic of overfitting in archaeology. I, I feel like, you know, I'm at this um, this RVing event, and there's a lot of people, a lot of different people here from different backgrounds and different jobs and things like that. And we were all kind of sitting around a campfire last night, listening to some music. And there's a gentleman who we've gotten to know, and he's originally from Scotland, but he's been in this country for I don't know 20, 20 to thirty years or something like that. And he actually said it, which I think exemplifies the problem that we have in data collection and archaeology. He said, when I first came to this country, I thought I was coming to one country. And as I traveled around, I realized I was in 50 different countries, <laughs> not just from a from a cultural and even a regulatory standpoint, but like, you know, driving laws and people and culture and everything was just different. And, you know, it gets even worse in archaeology when you look, you could have, you know, CRM firms in one region, and even they may do things slightly differently, you know, and Everybody that listens to this show regularly knows that uh, I consulted and still consult for WildNote, which is a data collection platform. And one of the things that we have in there is 
uh, standardized output for primarily California DPR forms, which is their recording forms, and the Nevada IMAX forms, and then a few other states around, but those are kind of the big ones. And we still have CRM firms that want to use those forms. And they say, hey, can we make changes to this form? And we're like, you mean the agency output form? No, you can't. <laughs> like this is, this is what the agency is dictating. And yet, even though there's a standardization, if you will, of that data collection method, they still want to do it differently because they're used to just making changes on their own and the agency is not enforcing anything on top of that. So let, yeah. let me give you guys a, a chance to comment on that on the other side of the break because we're just about up on time on this segment. I didn't mean to take it all the way to the end, but we'll come right back here in just a minute. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to the Architect Podcast. And I'm talking to Michael and Shelby. And I just said a whole bunch of stuff right at the end of the last segment about, you know, how nothing is standardized in data collection, even amongst agencies and... <laughs> to see her in terms of a particular region. Do you guys have any comments on that? Well, I agree. Now, so when I was in CRM, mm-hmm. I, I managed projects pretty much all over the country. So mm-hmm. 100, you know, or more archaeologists at one time. Nice. And I had this same purpose in mind when I, when I did it for CRM. And it's astounding how even if I dictate it, right, and started developing some of the tools that, that Michael I, and the team have been continuing on developing, but they still won't do it. And it, even in agency archaeology, it's not a matter of how much you're paying them. It really is a culture. So the hardest part for us, like I was alluding to in the last segment, is not one of difficulty. It's a behavioral change. Mm. What do we do as archaeologists to change our, our mindset from you know, this is good enough, or this is how it's done to how can we do it better? There's a real problem if, as I've studied and lots of other people study different parts of archaeology, we go and we ask biologists for their data and we ask, you know, human, you know, uh, doctors or et cetera for their data. I have yet to have anybody from an outside field ever ask me for my data. Why? (laughs) Yeah, I think there's kind of an old adage, you know, put 10 archaeologists in the room and you have 10 different opinions. Mm-hmm. Um, there's always a, the, an interest in, you know, being able, having the leeway to do something differently or have some flexibility. But like, as we discussed earlier, there's, we collect a lot of the same data routinely, just in, in different ways. And even as you point out, when people are confronted with a with a form that they have to fill out they want to they want to change the form even when it's the official form Uh, but i kind of tend to think that sort of going back to the to the primary observation issue is we need to start having ways that archaeologists and organizations are submitting their data at the you know the the most primary level into a system that sort of enforces at least a sort of a standard ontology, a level of standardization that makes them already, or at least increases very strongly the prospects of them being interoperable and right. reusable. Yeah. 
there's an extreme amount of resistance, as Shelby pointed out, for people to change how they do things and they don't want to do often attempt not to to get with the program in a sense mm-hmm. when they're required to do so they they tend to subvert that and but if if we start placing requirements i think especially in crm on say you know uh, contract firms every project has to have a data management plan and it has to fulfill certain requirements and and it's and and if we build yeah. and is enforced, yeah, and if we start to have like it would have to be a collective thing, obviously, but come up with a, a sort of more uh, centralized, cohesive, and integrative data standard that people actually are required to submit their data into digitally, then maybe we we would start to get to a place where we can start to shed all this these. Um, okay variety of things and we would have to do that at and i think if we attack it at the i'm interested in archaeology phase sort of, sort of college and, and pre-college phases and, and and where you have courses on data collection methods not just a field school or, or whatever and so they get introduced to these systems as a way of doing things as opposed to what happens now it seems like if there is a crm course in college you learn about the laws etc but where is the Data lifecycle management. Where is that part? Is the statistics and everything else that you might get? But where is data ethics? Where is that? Which happens in lots of other fields, a lot of other fields. Sure. Why don't we have something like that so that we're not battling these misconceptions? Instead, those up and coming archaeologists, you know, will have a voice and be able to push, you know, push these things through and. Anyway, I think that that's kind of the the entry point at which we decide to do this. And one other thing is that we're not saying that at the more refined levels that we wouldn't want to, you know, at, at the smaller scales, that we wouldn't want to allow for interpretation or, or flexibility in the ontologies. What we're saying is that we have to have basic, the base amount of data, the baseline data needs to be systematic needs to be collected systematically, handled systematically, just the additional things. And also on the additional things, we need to add the coding sheets and and reference points at how did we come to this conclusion based on the base data that we we collected. That's well said. Addressing sort of the, you know, teaching the new generation coming up, right? And, And teaching them the right way, so to speak, so they can come in with a voice. I know just because of the way that the world works, this will get better as... I mean, there's no way to say it, but as the old guard retires or leaves the field and the new people come in, this is going to get better. But I can tell you, I was in grad school when the first iPad came out in April of 2010 and I bought it within a week of it coming out. (laughs) I was like, this thing is going to be a game changer. I need to do this. And I was in a shallow geophysics class over the summer and, you know, doing field data collection. Now, again, you know, it's old technology now because it was the first iteration and it got real hot in those Georgia summers and I had to put it in the van sometimes to cool it down. But that that is a problem that's getting better. But either way, I had so much resistance trying to collect this data that we were doing digitally, right? And then coming into the field, into archaeology after that, I was in CRM before that and I went back into CRM after that. I tried working with CRM firms that I was, you know, a, a field tech and then 
a crew chief and then you know, eventually a project manager at and saying, hey, you know, we're going to do all these things. We're still going to record the way you want to, but can we just do it on tablets? Can we do it on, you know, something and, and find out of a, a standardized way to to keep people from coming up with their own things, come up with drop down menus, you know, start to standardize some of these things, but allowing room for creativity. And I ended up having to start my own company because the resistance was so high mm-hmm. to any sort of collection like that, whether it was the standardization or just the technology to begin with, people saying iPads will never work in the field. And people still say that. Well, we stories for you on that one. I had 12 <laughs> brand new, beautiful iPads. We developed to survey one, two, three. We have our yeah. that actually do this and we've got these new iPads have LiDAR and et cetera on them. They sat, my, I bought them now three times, but they Ugh. sat unused in a CRM firm for a long time and yeah. good news is that michael and a new archaeologist um, a, a young archaeologist that we just hired who's a data enthusiast doesn't have a lot mm-hmm. of experience but he said the word data and i said the word hired <laughs> so, <laughs> are going to go out next week and pilot uh, the interior system i'm trying to get started for eight years mm-hmm. we're looking at things um, in a grid-like pattern at various scales and we're going to test out ipads and so and other devices to kind of do a baseline to see which ones uh, work better in the field and can we actually get better resolution of data and does it cost more? That's a misnomer and I still think it is. If you're wondering if, if anybody's done any real research on that, Jeff Alshul and also Michael, there's several articles on actual comparisons between, you know, doing walking surveys uh, versus doing something on, you know, a digital platform and, and using a TRU system. So we're going to try it out again very systematically. We did regular survey work, you know, the pedestrian, can you see your neighbor one? Mm-hmm. And we've done a complete total survey of that. We're going to go back and try targeted samples to compare whether it does cost more and whether the data actually um, gives us better quality data for land management purposes. Yeah, I, I can tell you after... Over 10 years of collecting data digitally in the field and using almost exclusively iPads, but branching out into some Android devices occasionally, you know, just my two cents on that is sometimes it's not quicker. In fact, a lot of times it's not quicker to collect digitally in the field, because if you're working with a a paper form that's got a grid and you just have to make tick marks, there's no difference between doing that on a piece of paper and doing it on an iPad. Right. And sometimes even the typing is slower on an iPad. So it it may actually take longer in some cases Mm -hmm. to collect the data in the field. However, the time savings on the back end are just are just massive. I mean, absolutely massive. You're not reading my left-handed chicken scratch that I'm dragging my hand across my right in the rain notebook with my left hand. You know, you're not reading any of that and trying to have those errors of transcription. Mm-hmm. You're, you're at least getting something that's a little more homogenized and readable. And then in some cases, you just tidy it up a little bit and export a form and you're done, you know, so. And that's exactly what, what when I mentioned it, it comparisons so through the whole life cycle of the project. One of the arguments that I've had is, that people are like, it's going to take so long. And I had them, I had certain archaeologists come up with how long more do you think? Give me a cost estimate right. or a pay, pay for it to take a little bit longer there. Now, what I said was, okay, now how much does an archaeologist cost, especially to the federal government or a government or mm-hmm. a client? How much per hour does a archaeological tech 
and maybe a crew chief and maybe a field director if they're out there, how much do they cost an hour? Okay. Now, how much does that project director, archaeologist, and that PI cost an hour that is looking at the chicken scratch and everything that you're saying and documenting <laughs> science and making up stuff that they don't know because they couldn't read it? How much does that person cost? Now, right. let's do the math. So for every three-man crew is maybe an hour of a PI or high uh, mm-hmm. director's time. So if I can, if it costs me just one extra hour, I'm still saving an hour there. Right. So there you go. You know, it's, you know, my hypothesis and we'll see. I've got uh, eight years now of, you know, how much these projects have cost. Mm -hmm. Um, So let's see what, what comes out of it. And even if it doesn't, can I manage the land? So say it was even, maybe a little bit more to do it this way. Because we're also asking them to be more refined in, in what they're doing. Right. Can I manage this land better? Can I help, in my case, mission readiness? So can a, do I know enough that if a soldier called, they have to do a critical training or there's an explosion that happened or whatever happens on our facilities that I can't talk about, whatever that stuff is, and I need to make a split second decision. There's a fire coming on our, on our northern installation. Can I make mm-hmm. a, a split sec, a second decision based on chicken scratch and waiting for the report. No, <laughs> I can't. I don't. Right. And they're like, well, it's not consulted and, and concurred on by, you know, by SHPO. And I'm like, so you're just going to let everything burn, I guess, or whatever. Or yeah. I can tell them to move their actions somewhere else quickly or to create fire breaks. If I at least had the data in real time, which can be done on tablets and devices like this, I can make decisions and have them out in field, the emergency response people out in field respond quickly to protect the sites. I cannot do that in its current format, nor will I ever be able to do that because it's going to take them another six months to get me a report. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I'm real passionate about it. Sorry if I seem aggressive. This <laughs> <laughs> is very frustrating. It's been 40 years of you know, nonsense, it seems. <laughs> I hear you. Yeah, totally. Well, just, I mean, on top of that, the I mean, when you're collecting in a, in a digital format you know with the you can also collect all kinds of data in the background about the user all the data are linked to the user maybe to the precise location the time mm-hmm. there's all kinds of other data that you could be collecting that kind of enrich and help to validate your your data set that the that the field crew don't even have to think about improve their methods say okay this person's walking at this pace and you know whatever at this time of day, et cetera, et cetera. And it seems like there's richer data sometimes. So if we collected it seasonally, which I've been trying to do along with like a, a fixed swing and geophysical data, oh, now yeah. I integrate all, got several different things going on. Now I can integrate all of those different types of data at the same scales and, and see, you know, how we can better manage that land, protect the land, you know, avoid impacts or et cetera. So like Michael was saying, it's collecting all this data about the user, about detector, all kinds of other things that can influence and bias. We don't really have access to except for the chicken scratch you were talking about, Chris, on the thing that says it's hot today. You know, I see some plants. It's not real sunny. If they write that, they really teach you to do that. But uh, I don't know how many people actually still write, you know, kind of the environment that they're, that they're operating. Yeah, you know, I'm interested too. going back to the issue of archaeological advances. You know, I mentioned the Nevada IMAX form. Well, some people don't even remember that IMAX stands for Intermountain 
Antiquities computer system, I believe. And that was a whole mountain region with many states recording basically on the same forms. And I don't know how long it took for them to all end up with their own versions of the IMAX form, but it wasn't very long, right? And then, you know, Nevada's got their own, Utah's doesn't even call it that anymore. And Nevada actually dramatically changed theirs a few years ago from a, a longer complicated form to basically a short form which I think was a mistake because they had a lot of nice little boxes that you could fill in. And now you just kind of have to know everything and new people in the field just don't, and they might miss some stuff, Mm -hmm. but either way, looking at one of your articles here, it looks like the BLM's trying to bring this kind of thing back with the national cultural resources information system. What can you tell us about that in the last couple of minutes of this segment? I'll let Michael talk about that. Uh, We're trying to work with all kinds of federal landowners because federal land are aside from Texas, you know, covers the majority of the land. So <laughs> right. in a lot of these sort of let's help get data looking better in several states. Yeah, well, well, the uh, Nick Crims, uh, uh, the the system that the BLM has developed was developed because of some of the problems that we're talking about. They cannot access mm-hmm. data in order to make decisions quickly and reliably. And a number of years ago, there was a requirement put forth by the BLM that the BLM's uh, offices had to make travel management plans to plan how different roads and other pathways are being used on the lands that they manage. They cross jurisdictions, go across states, and they realized they didn't really have the data to do that. Hmm. And they, so, and they, they needed to access these data that are most of the, the data that the system integrates are from a whole series of different state databases that are individually maintained. They all have different formats and uh, schemas, all kinds of things like that. But what they did is that over many years of meeting, uh, all kinds of uh, consultation with uh, agency personnel and SHPOs and database administrators, they, they finally came to the agreement to be able to to get the data from the different SHPOs into their system. In order to do that, they have to create complex Python scripts that translate, mm-hmm. extract and translate the data from the database into their a standardized common wow. data model. And then those data are hosted integrated data are hosted in an enterprise portal that the BLM administers that allows them to be able to see all the sites that have recorded Mm. the project areas, do some basic modeling within the interface that allows them to predict based on topographic and hydrological and other variables the likelihood of of archaeological sites in any of the areas they're looking at Hmm. and also summarize you know i'd like say draw a polygon of uh, area of interest that they they need to make decisions about summarize the uh the the history of investigations and what's been found there how much has been surveyed and that sort of thing but that was a tremendous effort that they had to do over many years, and still the data that they're able to integrate is actually, you know, fairly high-level summary data about sites and projects. It doesn't include all the many observations that went into those, you know, interpretations. Sure. Well, that sounds like a sounds like a massive effort, like you said. And I've got some other questions around that sort of 
I guess, data importing and consolidation. And we'll talk about that on the other side of the break back in a minute. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to the Architect Podcast. Final segment of this data problem episode, <laughs> which I, I feel like we've talked about these kinds of things a lot on this podcast, and especially with Paul on and you know him being a huge database nerd. We've talked to a lot of different people and a lot of different interviews and talked about different articles and, and a lot of things around how do we collect data in a way that makes it useful for the future, not just for right now and the report that you have to turn in at the media moment in time and make this one decision, but also in the future so we can bring these big decisions together. And something one of you guys mentioned in a previous segment reminded me as we're recording this, one of the last episodes of the CRM Archaeology podcast, you know, one of our hosts there is a professor at Berkeley and he was brought us a topic about chat GPT and how chat GPT could be used to write, yeah. you know, is being used to write by some people, papers, reports, yeah. and whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing. And, you know, using AI to do that, I think one of you guys mentioned, you know, if we had this kind of standardized collection of data, we actually could use AI to look at some of these connections that we just are incapable of seeing mm-hmm. across different areas. And it's it's absurd that we even have uh, the standard of different states when it comes to prehistoric data, because they didn't have the concept of states back then, right? Mm-hmm. They they were all over the place, sometimes isolated in little regions and, and sometimes across massive expanses of areas. And we should just be looking at the data in that way, not in these little, these little smaller pockets. You know what I mean? We have a duty and a responsibility and we're failing, unfortunately. And it makes me sad because I, I, we have this part, like I was saying, these humans are a part of this, like a living and dynamic ecosystem, like biology, ecology, geology. These atoms and particles swirling around again, these beautiful, you know, oxygen rich earth, but they all have interconnections to each other with data, and the changes happen through time. But there's this chasm in the ability to understand these interconnections and the changes. In the chasm, we're creating it's the human data, namely archaeological data. So climate change and everything else, we, we have to be able to, to, to integrate. And we have these arbitrary boundaries, not just at the state level or the country level. We create them ourselves. They're called the management, the management unit. We don't call them management units, but they're sites and they're enforceable by law. That's crazy. We need to utilize AI and, and look at impacts, densities. Right. It's like someone just drawing it from cancer, say, you know, on a part of your body, just drawing a circle and be like, I think that's going to capture it all. Right. What? <laughs> no, don't take all of that out. You need to actually see the density and, and analyze that density. And if we did that, imagine if regulations change. I'm not saying change your, the basic regulations of what a site is and per state has different definitions. Tribes have different definitions. What I'm saying is that if we did this, it can inform these decisions. And also we can make those decisions weighted based on these types of regulations. And if a regulation changes, say in Arizona, certain types of things, 
we're, we're important for historic trash. We're just going to use that, right? Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, they're like, we got too much historic trash stuff. Those aren't really sites. Okay, how hard is it for me with tens of thousands of sites, unless I go reanalyze what part or component of something was, consider the historic trash and its significance, I got to redo the survey again. Or right. if I had the data, I can just devalue, deweight the observation, and boom, I adhere to the law. Thank you. Print new maps. Mm-hmm. It's boring. I call it. <laughs> it seems so crazy. Like, I feel like I'm going crazy. Yeah. yeah. I'm not doing this. Just crazy. I mean, I think another point, though, is to your point, is that many of the agencies now are, are moving towards or want to move towards a landscape perspective and to manage things at a landscape level. BLM has a landscape approach to the management of public lands. Other agencies are are voicing the same interests. There's consortiums that have been assembled to do those kinds of things for ecology, but we don't mm-hmm. have the data organized or integrated in a way that we could actually do that, nor are we implementing the methods that would allow us to do that more yeah. readily. So we're at a loss in those kind of ways that, that uh, Shelby's saying right now to be able to, to look at data across a larger landscape and integrate those data with environmental and other data that, mm-hmm. to which they're directly related. It, it, by the same token, we're unable to really address the concerns of a lot of uh, tribes and, and other stakeholder communities who are very interested in in the landscape, the the resources in the landscape, the plants, the animals, the minerals, the landforms, and how all those things relate together to form you know their heritage or uh, be a mm-hmm. component of their uh, their way of life and. We're essentially ignoring those those connections, those connections and those relationships, much of the time by siloing the data. You know, not only in terms of storage and archiving, but siloing how we actually collect and represent the cultural resource data as being pertaining to you know individual sites and projects. Mm-hmm. Beyond that, as well, the these data, you know, as we've been trying to emphasize are important not just to archaeologists or to the management of the archaeological record. They're important to to understanding our place within the world and processes that have, have occurred with societies and the environment for thousands of years. Archaeology is the only discipline that can provide a deep time perspective on, you know, what has happened with in terms of human environment interactions and changes in societies as a result of things like climate change, uh, warfare, migration. Archaeology is uniquely positioned to be able to do that, but and CRM has been developing and can contribute these massive volumes of data about many different times and places and environmental and social context that right now, frankly, we're unable to access in a way that would make those data as powerful as they could be. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, can I interject here uh, really quickly? I, the reason why I can be so aggressive too, 
Michael's saying, we can't integrate, can't do this, we can't do that. And, and you've said it as well, Chris, is that internally we're thinking, well, we, we want to do all this stuff, but if we don't, and I agree, we can't do any of it, but the issue too is that we need to do it. If we don't do it and without the transparency and the ability for others outside of our field to understand the purpose of archaeology and the use, usefulness of archaeology, I mean, we've probably all heard, like, what do you guys actually do, you know, from your clients to whatever? Why do we have to do this constantly and constantly? And we say, well, it's required by law. Now, watch this. If you have policymakers, which we do, and in various different levels of the government, that, that are questioning why is CRM that relies on these regulations, that's why it exists in the U.S., and it is, it's a moneymaker, it might be a multi-million or even maybe billion-dollar company, you know, companies right now, industry. Mm-hmm. And what if they just decide to deregulate because they don't understand it and we're not useful because they have to fund other things like biology or whatever that seems to be more useful to us now as humans. So, in fact, right now there are bills and regulations currently under review to deregulate the requirements of archaeology. Namely, like the the SOI, you know, the uh, Secretary of Interior Requirements and Standards for Archaeologists, they want to minimize, they want to reduce what those requirements are. Hmm. Now, because it's too expensive and we don't have enough of them and we can't find them and it's too cumbersome, as well as Section 106 and Section 110 and other requirements. If they do that, now we won't have the manpower, the incentive, or the money to change. Behavior change has to happen now. Wow. And that's absolute, right? Going back to to the last segment real quick on the BLM effort, I got to mention this because I want to get this in. I see Sarah Kanza on one of these articles and we've talked to her before. Mm -hmm. Eric, her husband was actually on like, I think the third or fourth episode of this show, you know, over eight years ago. And, you know, talked to both of them a lot. And they, of course, run Open Context and started that. And the DINA project, the Digital Index of North American Archaeology, was born out of the Open Context project. And I'm just, when we first started hearing about that, you know, a long time ago, and we talked to a few people about DINA on this probably six, seven, eight years ago, mm-hmm. you know, talking about that, I just expected it to spread across the country a lot faster than it has. And it, it almost seems to have stalled out. I don't know if I'm getting a misread on that, but it's just, it's just like, it seems like that is almost one of the solutions that we're looking for, at least the start of a solution that we're looking for. What do you guys think about the, the Dina project and their efforts with open context? Well, I appreciate, I know them quite well. They were, yeah. on, they were on that tag grant and we wrote some of that book I was talking about offline with you, mm-hmm. the guides of the practice in digital archeology. span when TDAR, which I uh, which I, I worked on with, with Keith Kentig, kind of in its infancy, started, it, it's very good. I think it's a great start, but we need to get people like that and the TDAR people that have different perspectives. One's looking at the artifact level, the other one's looking at the report, and we're looking at this, and BLM's trying to do this. The problem is not that we don't have people that want to do this. It's that we can't get together and decide. Right. Nice together and find one solution and lobby to make people realize that we can be transparent in archaeology. You can see the process at which we, which directly correlates with the regulation and directly correlates with the requirements. Right now, they have no idea. And if you don't have an archaeologist that's in a, um, an agency firm and they're just sending a report, they check the box. Like it's done and they put the report on the shelf and then the mm-hmm. project goes forward and that's it. So I think that 
you know, we need to, to definitely look at things like, like, I think that they've done an amazing job and I think it's stalled out because people don't see the point to use it. It could be pricing models that I think have issues, you know, with TDAR. It's we need to get together and talk a lot yeah. over and over and have working groups. And when we get federal grants, like all of these have had, we have an accountability even further to make sure that what we're doing is actually transferable, right? To other mm-hmm. applications and, and usable and widely spread. And I can't speak much more to it. I, I respect them wholeheartedly and uh, they've taught me a lot also about yeah. data and data ethics. So Michael, I don't know if you're anything to add. Well, I think a very important thing that Open Context and Dina have, have been able to accomplish or that they've been working on is developing ontological matching schemes. Yeah. And so they've demonstrated the ability to pull together all these diverse data sets and diverse taxonomies and ways of, you know, uh, identifying the same thing or, or something that's similar. They, they've been able to, to bring those together into, you know, a, a common uh, scheme so that you can you can find things that are of a similar nature or that fall within the same time period or have the same function or the same types of features and so that allows mm-hmm. you know in the case of in like of Dina that that allows you know people to identify sites that are recorded in um, many different state databases that have you know a similar attribute like they're all Paleo-Indian or a particular period within right. that, but but I think the very nature of them, you know, being able to show that there's that these data can be integrated, that and to develop the some of the means to do that is a great foundation for us coming together and finding a a common sort of core meta ontology that data can you know start to coalesce in towards mm. and enable us to start collecting and managing data that are already or are readily interoperable if 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 not you know from the point of inception interoperable and reusable i think uh, something that's really uh maybe handicapped to some people's views that the use of those data is that they're restricted in terms of being able to share uh, locational information. So the very precise locational information that's maybe stored in a state database is not available to the average user of of DINA. So you only get it at a certain course of resolution. So being able to, you know, immediately harness those data to say, do uh, some kind of broad scale regional or, or, even broader analysis that makes use of uh, other data like environmental variables on hydrology or habitats or that sort of thing, topography, is not mm-hmm. really uh, achievable in the state that things are. They, they could actually be with the data that they've been able to integrate uh, on some level, although those data, of course, are collected in many different ways and individual sites mean different things and different places because of how those data are, those sites are, you know, defined. But I think it's an excellent foundation. And as Shelby points out, I think we're at the point now where 
we all really need to get together and there needs to be a, a sort of a collaborative community yeah. that's that that is working on this towards a common a goal including tribal tribal yeah. members i think it's for sure feel of a tribal voice and we're just making up assumptions and our voice is the only one that's being heard so I'm right yeah. Very yeah that's a good point yeah absolutely so we got to wrap up this show i i, just, I got one more question for you guys and you know, you mentioned this issue was born out of a, a, a similar symposium that you guys ran at the SAAs. And I know when you come off of one of those symposiums, especially at the uh, or one of those symposia at the SAAs, you just got this real high, like, oh, my God, we're going to do so much with this. And then, you know, if nobody takes the reins on that, it just kind of dies. Well, at least you guys took that and put it into this issue. And now that that's and I know probably these articles are probably written and edited nine months ago or something. <laughs> it's always a, a big delay on that kind of stuff. But now that the issue is out, we're a month and a half or, or more past that. And, and people are probably recognizing your efforts here and the efforts of the authors of these papers. You know, building on that high, where do you want to go now? Like, what's next? Shelby, we'll start with you. All right. So um, we were approached that same question at the essays. You can buy that, you know, one of the, one of the uh, editing, you know, publishers there with advances. and. We have lots of plans for what's next. We, we never stopped. You know, we, we've got lots of newsletters and other publications out there that we're going to continue to build, um, as we did with the articles before this article, before this special issue, we had a previous special issue. So, you know, not every, you know, two years or, or so, we want to continue that with the archaeological community. But I really want to go and try to get this information out in other venues outside of archaeology as well as push forward with, with our desire to get together. You know, we're creating a, a website, et cetera, to, to sign up if you have like-minded uh, types of things. Uh, it's, not, it's not quite out yet, but so mm-hmm. we can start getting together and finding where we start and where we're going. So, Michael, you might have some additional comments about that. The issue, developing the issue and the whole thing is a, is quite a, a long road. So I, I believe, yeah, along the lines of what Shelby's saying, that we we really need to start developing the collaboratively the, the tools and the community to to push the needle forward and start implementing new types of processes and systems that we can actually achieve the things that we're talking about because I right now the the issue is really about a vision for the future and we need to start taking the steps to to realize aspects of those vision that vision and and we are certainly just one little piece of that ourselves yeah so we're really asking people to you know join us and you know let's let's change the world together um and so reaching out and let's get together and have the conversations with with productive outcomes, start to better understand, you know, what, what, what are the next steps in order to, to, to push these types of things forward? Because certainly there are tons of very good work that's going on all over the place in archaeology. I just think if we, both for funding purposes and time, uh, you know, how much time we have to do, let's get together and come up with a unified purpose. And that sounds probably a lot easier and, and shorter than, than, <laughs> colossal effort that that would take. I mean, we are archaeologists after all, and we're kind of all, you know, alpha personalities. So 
Go really well or really badly. Well, there's. I, <laughs> right. It's maybe worth mentioning that there's uh, early house seminars that were done in the '70s uh, to yeah. to figure out how to do CRM, and they kind yeah. of they basically try to write the book about you know what needs to be done to develop the the industry and to comply with the laws that had been recently passed, the National Historic Preservation Act principally. And there's they had some great ideas and a number of those the thoughts that they had at the time, issues that they brought up, you know, we still haven't been able to address and achieve. There is right. another there's a, a sort of an early house revisited effort that is that is being organized right now and the the SAA has been involved in it there was a a forum at the most recent SAA meetings in Portland and as far as i understand there is a they're going to have the i think it's the national park service is going to host in in their facilities in west virginia a uh, large group of archaeologists people working in the preservation field I think maybe 30 to 50 individuals maybe to hmm. to try to hash out what the big issues are and how they're and sort of uh maybe write essentially write a plan for for the next 50 years of crm the issue of data collection and management i haven't seen as being a, um, a major component of that and that to me is is uh, is a little bit mystifying, and and I think at least for Shelby and I, uh, there uh, are certainly issues that are are highly critical that haven't been addressed, like decolonizing archaeology, incorporating uh, tribal perspectives and and interests in a much um, better way, and uh, a whole variety of other issues that have come to the fore, you know, in the last decade or more, but. Yeah. But the but data collection and management of the type of things that we're talking about thus far doesn't seem to be the the uh, a major focus, and I really think it should be. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode. It sounds like, I mean, we still have a long way to go, and we still have a lot of people to convince and a, and a lot of conversations to have. But I, it really sounds like the people that need to do this that are that are the driving force of this namely you guys and some other people in this space are are really driving it forward and i hope we can keep that going and, and end up in a good place so thank you for coming on the show we've just interviewed michael highland and shelby manny and again thank you guys for coming on and we really appreciate it and look what look forward to whatever's coming out from you guys next in this space all right thank you so much for having us yes thank you for having us great to be here Thanks for listening to the Architect Podcast. Links to items mentioned on the show are in the show notes at www.arcpodnet.com slash Archaeotech. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com and paul at lugal.com. Support the show by becoming a member at arcpodnet.com slash members. The music is a song called Off-Road and is licensed free from Apple. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network.
Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Become.